Hey, good morning. Uh, we are so glad that you're here at Fellowship with us this weekend. This is a great weekend to be here because this is the weekend that we're kicking off our spring teaching series. Um, if you're new to Fellowship or maybe you've just recently started coming, one of the things that we try to do as a church and how we treat this time uh, of teaching is we try to take an extended look at a specific section of Scripture in the fall, in the spring, and in the summer. And the reason that we do that is because we want to, as a body of believers, um, as a family, look at a specific aspect of who God is and what that means for our faith together. So we do that here. We do that in our small groups. Then we do that through your personal time in the word. That, that, and that happens through the journal. And what we're going to be doing this spring is going through the gospel of Mark. The theme of Mark, the thing that we want to look at this spring, is what does it mean to follow Jesus with our lives? If you have been around church ever, or even just religious people, you've probably heard that phrase of, man, I just want to follow Jesus, or even like, what would Jesus do, and I just want to follow him, and I want to be a Christ follower. We want to look at what scripture says about what that actually means. And so, the thing that we get to do is watch the disciples in the gospel of Mark and see as their lives unfold, as their ministry unfolds, we get to see this picture of what it looks like for us to follow Jesus, why we follow Jesus, what that looks like, how that happens. And I think the reason that that's such a compelling vision for us is because we are hardwired as people to follow and emulate things, right? Because all of us do. Think back to the time that you were a kid. Um, that's the reason that when I come home, Probably four days out of seven, I walk into my house and my five-year-old is in his Batman pajama onesie and Batman mask. He just, he wants to be Batman right now. That's his thing. Um, we are designed and created to emulate things. We all had heroes as a kid, people we looked up to. Um, I started thinking about this when I was getting ready for this message. Man, who have I wanted to follow? And for me, one person stood out in my life. Um, and that one person, I found a picture of him, was Boomer Esiason, right? When I was a kid, um, I wanted to be Boomer Esiason. He had blonde hair. I had blonde hair. He played quarterback. I played quarterback. Um, I, his name was Boomer. That was really cool. I liked the Bengals helmets. And so for me, I looked at Boomer and really wanted to emulate him. And so when the Bengals were on TV, the 88 Super Bowl, like I'm watching it and I'm, I'm watching how he throws. I'm kind of trying to do the same thing. Um, I, I've got the Bengals football. I had Bengals sweatpants. I, I just ever, the, the cards, the posters, um, the, the Hutch helmet, you know, um, all of that stuff. And even when um, pre-internet, we got the Dillard's Christmas catalog. And the back page of the Dillard's Christmas catalog, what there was, was there was the, the sports section of the catalog of sports stuff that you can order. They had the page of all the jerseys, right? And at the time, again, pre-customization, you had one player from every team, and there was a little picture of every team's jersey. And, and so they had the Boomer Esiason jersey. I found it. Like, I went back, and like, this was pretty much what I wore from age four to seven. At some point, this was probably on me because everything in me wanted to be like Boomer. I mean, to this day, any sport that I play, I wear number seven. I wanted to be like Boomer. And you saw evidence of me wanting to be like him and what I wore, how I tried to throw a football, how I acted, all of that stuff, because that was the guy I was kind of trying to follow. God just wired us to be like that. And so when we have an invitation to follow Jesus, that really is tapping into this natural instinct we all have. You can probably think back right now uh, of the posters you had on your room, um, the musicians you wanted to be like, the actor, the actress, the celebrity, the political figure, maybe like a parent or a teacher, maybe an athlete that you liked. Something in us that just taps into our nature of wanting to engage and follow people that we respect. That's the call that we have in scripture, to follow Jesus. And so what we see in Mark 
specifically today in Mark chapter 1, what we see is an outline of what it means to follow Jesus and why we do. So as you turn your Bible to chapter 1 of Mark, what we see in this first section of Mark in terms of following Jesus is we see who Jesus was and why he came. We're going to see how he calls us and who he calls And then we're going to see what our response to that looks like. We see those three things in this section of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark was probably written in between 60 and 70 AD. Most people believe it was written by the guy named John Mark in the book of Acts. It was probably written in Rome to a largely Roman audience. And it was probably written built on the testimony of the disciple Peter. And so Mark, the author of the book, was not a disciple. He, he was not there with Jesus. But what Mark did was spent a lot of time with Peter. And in the New Testament, you see that as Peter went around and planted churches and did ministry and told people about Jesus, Mark's with him. He's probably asking him questions. He's listening to him teach. He's hearing him talk about what it was like to follow Jesus. And one of the things about the Gospels that that make them such compelling reading is that they're a first-person narrative. It puts you right in the middle of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so as we go through Mark, we are largely seeing the life and ministry of Jesus from the perspective of the Apostle Peter. And so as we do that, we see this first-person narrative of these men that are trying to follow Jesus with their lives. And we have that same call. So today, we're going to look at how Jesus came, who he calls, and how we respond. Let's look at how he came. Mark opens the gospel up with a very vivid description of who Jesus was and how he came, right? So right here in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's just stop right there. He introduces the foundational element of the identity of Jesus in the very first sentence of the gospel. The writers of scripture were not confused about whether or not Jesus Christ was God. They understood that he was the son of God. They clearly said it and they clearly wanted people to understand that Jesus Christ was the son of God. And that's how he kicks this thing off. Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then in verse two, as you guys look in verses two and three in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. Feel free to take that with you. If you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Um, but they're right there in the back. And depending on your Bible, as you read through this first section of Mark, or as you read through it this week in the journal, maybe you notice that verses two and three are kind of out in italics or brackets or quotation marks. And there's a reason for that. He's quoting the Old Testament. That might seem strange. In a first-person narrative, why is he starting with the Old Testament? He wants you to understand something about Jesus. He wants you to understand that Jesus came as he was promised to us. And so this quote here, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is an Old Testament prophecy. And so as you read this, what this is a lot like is if you've ever seen a movie that starts with a flashback. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like a movie or a TV show. And before it gets to the main storyline that it's going to be about, it opens with a flashback to give you a background or a context of what's about to happen. Right? You guys know what I mean? Um, Think about Star Wars. Like even in episode five, before the movie starts, you see the scroll of the text that's kind of explaining some background information to you. That's basically what verses two and three in the gospel of Mark are, is he's giving you some background information that Jesus came as he was promised in 2000 years of old Testament history, that there was this call, this promise, this hope that God was going to send a Messiah that would save the world from their sins and draw people to himself. And it was this building call and promise that everyone was looking for. When is this going to happen? Who's this Messiah? When's he going to get there? And specifically, one of the things about the coming Messiah that was promised 
was that there would be a prophet who came before him. There would be a man who prepared people for the coming of the chosen Messiah, the savior of the world. And that's what this prophecy is. It's describing the guy that's going to come before the Messiah, the guy that's going to come before the savior. And so that's the flashback. Imagine the flashback ends and the movie cuts to like present day reality, right? And you see what's actually happened. That's verse four. Verse four is the cut to the present day reality of the story. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So he gives you some um, insight into his fashion and diet there for a reason. That, that's, not, that's not fluff. If you were Jewish and read what he had on and what he was eating, you would pretty instantaneously understand that he was a prophet. Right, And so this is a cultural thing. We have cultural clues of fashion now. If you see someone in a blue uniform with a badge and a hat, you kind of know, oh, they're a police officer. If you see someone in a dark suit, a tie, and an American flag pin, and really well-coiffed hair, oh, they're probably a politician, right? And so we have these kind of these kind of sartorial clues that, that kind of let us know what somebody does. If you were Jewish and you saw camel's hair, belt, locust, honey, oh, okay, he's a prophet. And so he's even more deeply connecting John to this prophecy of the prophet that's preparing the world for a savior, right? Jesus came as he was promised. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. That's who he was. And so he paints John very vividly as the person who's preparing the world for salvation from Jesus Christ. That's what you see there. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse nine, you see something really interesting. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son. With you, I am well pleased. You see Jesus being baptized by John. And the reason that this is significant is because John was baptizing people to symbolize the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus was the sinless son of God. He did not need to be baptized He didn't have sins that needed to be forgiven. Why did he do that? He did that out of obedience to the Father and to model the call that he was bringing people into. It's your second blank here. Jesus came in humility. Jesus came in humility. The reason that the call to follow Jesus is so attractive is because we follow a Savior who came into the world as a humble, loving servant with the mission to save and gather humanity back to the Father. Jesus came in humility. Not only was he the promised Messiah, savior and creator of the world, he came in humility to serve those whom he loved. Speaks volumes about the savior that we follow. Here's the last thing that we see about how he came here. Go back up to verse eight when John's preparing people for a savior. He says, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The phrase here, baptized with the Holy Spirit, that's communicating the perfect, complete and transformative purification of their souls. He's saying, I baptized you with water. That was a symbol. That was a picture. That was, that was kind of a, let me help you understand this, that you are sinful and you need to be cleansed. And and coming into the water and going out was a symbol of that cleansing. He's saying there's a better purification coming from the savior of the world. And that's why he's here. He's saying Jesus came with a purpose. 
Jesus came to purify our souls. He came to make us new. He came to forgive and get rid of sin. He came to fix that aspect of us that was broken. He came with a very clear purpose. Here's why it matters that we understand who Jesus was and why he came. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to follow Jesus for who he is, not who you want him to be, right? You can't truly follow Jesus if he's someone that you've just made up. You can't follow somebody without understanding who they are. And if we leave what scripture says about who Jesus is, we'll start to fill in who he was with our ideas or preferences. And and so when we leave the scriptural definition of Jesus, we start to make him about what we want him to be about. So we'll turn him into someone who's promoting a social or political agenda that we like. We'll turn him into a really nice guy that's going to justify whatever action we want to do. And we leave the scriptural definition of Jesus and enter into what we want him to be that lets us ultimately do what we want. That's not Jesus Christ, the son of God that we read about in the word of God. Foundationally, if we don't understand who Jesus is, we won't follow him well. So this idea that Jesus was a son of God, not a good teacher, not a nice guy, not a guy with some interesting political ideas, but the son of God who came into the world in humility and with a purpose that changes what it means to follow him, right? It's very different to follow the son of God who came into earth to give us eternal life than it is to, you know, a guy that plays football. Very different weight when it's the son of God, isn't it? And so if we want to follow Jesus, we've got to go to scripture and understand who he is. And that's what Mark does here in this first section. And he does that on purpose. He wants people to have a clear understanding of who Jesus was and how he came. We should want that same thing when we look at what it means to follow Christ. Who are we saying that we're following? What's true about him? What does that mean in our lives? Then we see that Jesus's purpose has a calling. Jesus does not come into the world, look around and then leave. He comes into the world with a calling. He comes into the world with an invitation. Jesus calls people. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have a calling of Christ? We see that really clearly. Actually, this is probably my favorite section uh, of the journal. Um, This is my favorite section of the first chapter of Mark because it's such a great picture of of how we interact with God. And it's such a compelling vision of how God feels about us, of how God treats us, of how God even engages us. And so in verse 16, we see that Jesus, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Okay, so Jesus is walking around the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these guys doing their job. He sees these guys working. Here's why this matters. Jesus called them where they were. For most of human history, we've taken this idea of God and we've made it this, this separate holy thing that we had to pursue and find. And most of human religion is built on this idea that we have to seek and find God and then we have to kind of make ourselves good enough for him through religious rituals, right? Like that's just most of what religion's always been. Jesus is unique and different in that he's fully God that came to man where we were. So instead of the pattern of man seeking God, Jesus shows us the reality of a God who's seeking us. And he called them right where they were. So when you go back to the text, look in verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He called them where they were. 
one of the things that, if we're honest with each other, can be kind of hard about our faith or about understanding God is that for an hour every week, it's pretty easy to find God relevant and meaningful when you're in this room, right? Because kind of the noise of the world slows down a little bit. Put your phone on, do not disturb. Um, nobody's bothering you. Everything in this room is kind of focused on the idea of who God is in scripture. We have music. There's words that you can see. Um, you're kind of a captive audience when there's somebody like you can get up and walk out. People kind of look at you funny. You don't want that. So you just sit there and like you have no car and there's everything in this room really makes it easy for you to think about God because everything else in the world stops while you're here. But if we're honest, where it's hard to think about God is the rest of the week because we leave this place, emails kick back up, life happens, we get busy, we get discouraged, we get frustrated, we go to work, we get unbelievably stressed out sometimes, we even get bored, life gets difficult, and God seems very far away. And so what can happen is we can kind of put God in this box and he becomes this thing that we do on the weekend that doesn't really have any relevance to every other aspect of how we live, right? It's a very American way of looking at God. I'm going to deal with him on the weekend. The rest of the time, though, I need to be practical. God doesn't make sense during my week. What we see about how Jesus calls us is that Jesus shows up in the middle of their week, in the middle of their grind, and calls them to follow him. We don't have to make Jesus relevant to the rest of our lives. Jesus is relevant to the rest of our lives because he shows up in the rest of our lives. The life that these guys lived as fishermen was pretty difficult, right? Think about what their life was like. What were they doing when he showed up? They were throwing nets into the water in a backwoods first century province of Rome. And it was really hard. Like you guys have seen Deadliest Catch. Fishing is pretty difficult for those guys. They have access to some technologies that were not available to the disciples, right? And so they show up, they get there. Everything smells awful because it's the first century, right? And that's just history. The further ago something happened, the worse it smelled. History 101. Um, they were, they, they, they were kind of rough guys. Um, it was one of those types of jobs back then, like most, where you went to work in the morning, not knowing if you'd have enough money to buy food the next day. It was very much a hand to mouth way to live. Um, it was really probably tedious work, whether it was mending a net or throwing it in the water or fixing a boat or whatever they would call a boat that we would look at and be nervous to get on. Um, they were the definition of grinding out a blue collar, tedious life. And Jesus showed up there. He showed up where they were. He didn't wait for them to go to church to call them to follow him. He showed up right in the middle of their boring, back-breaking day and said, come follow me. That's what's so powerful about Jesus. He's God that shows up every day in our lives and says, come follow me and see who I am. Right where they were. God is relevant to our lives because he shows up in our lives and cares about us in our lives and calls us to follow him in the midst of our everyday lives. Jesus reflects the reality of a God who is interested in us beyond an hour and a half on a Sunday. He shows up in the middle of their workday and says, come follow me. Here's the second thing that we see about how he calls them here. He called them for who they were. And listen, first glance reading of this, I'm going to be honest with you. I was like, well, of course he called these guys. They were the disciples. They, they helped start the church. They're giants in church history. They weren't those things yet though, right? Like when he shows up here, they were probably 17 to 20, um, probably illiterate. They had no money, no social standing. There was really nothing remarkable about them. And like anybody, the better we get to know these guys throughout the book of Mark, the more we see that they have some serious baggage, right? You do. These were not polished religious people. Jesus called them for who they were. 
When we think about following Jesus, we can be our own worst enemy in starting to get serious about following him because we know why we're messed up better than anybody else. We live with it for 24 hours a day in our head. And so we can think about following Jesus and immediately we get into this, this internal self-talk of, well, I can't follow Jesus because I can't follow Jesus because of my addictions. I can't follow Jesus because I'm not this enough. I can't follow Jesus because you don't know what I've done in the past. I can't follow Jesus because, and we fill in the blank with all of the reasons why we can't follow Jesus. What's so powerful about how Jesus calls these guys is that he calls them when he had no practical reason to do it. Jesus doesn't call them because they're awesome. Jesus calls them because he loves them. There is nothing that disqualifies us from following Jesus beyond our willingness to trust him. But we take ourselves out of the ability to follow him before we even have a chance to get started. Because we just look at all of the things that we see that we don't like ourselves and be like, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. When I, when I first started to get serious about my faith, I was probably 16 or 17 and, um, it was really kind of discouraging because I don't know if this is true for you, but like, I kind of had this stereotypical picture in my head of what like the perfect Christian was supposed to be like. Do you guys ever struggle with this? And I knew that I didn't match that picture very well. Right. And so, um, man, I, I, I was like, God, I don't think I can seriously follow you because that means I'm supposed to share the gospel. I'm really shy and introverted. I don't think I can do that. Um, God, I'm, I'm not super outgoing and popular. I don't, I don't think I can follow you because I'm supposed to be out there with people. God, I, I come from a broken home. I didn't have a dad around. There's a lot of things about being a godly man. I don't really have a context for um, God, I don't come from a family with a ton of money and social standing. God, I have a really bad temper, a really bad temper. One of the defining characteristics of me in my youth, really bad temper. How can I follow you? You think that Jesus is surprised by any of the things that we think nobody knows about us? He knows and still wants us. That's what's so powerful about this. Do you think that any of the things that we see that make these guys look silly in the rest of the gospel of Mark, Jesus was like, oh man, I did not see that coming. If only I would have known. No, it's the same thing with us. All of the lies that we tell ourselves that make us think that God wouldn't want us are completely erased in this section of scripture because we see that Jesus loves us for who we are and wants us to follow him for who we are. He doesn't want us to play religious games. Listen, think about this. First century, Jesus could have gone anywhere he wanted to call disciples, right? He could have gone to the Senate house in Rome. There were some successful guys there that had some good ideas. He could have gone to the temple in Jerusalem. There were some really religious guys there. Um, man, he could have even looked at like the Visigoths and be like, man, a couple hundred years, you guys are going to do some good stuff. I want to get it on the ground floor. Let's make something work here. Right? He could have done that. He doesn't. He goes to these guys. He goes to these guys and says, come follow me. Jesus wants us to follow him for who you are right now. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to change anything to follow Jesus. You just have to trust him and follow him. Stop telling yourselves lies about why you can't follow Jesus and trust him. Jesus wants you for who you are right now, not who he thinks you might be able to one day become. Follow him right now. Here's the last thing he calls them into. He calls them into action. Look at what he says. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He says, follow me. He doesn't say, I'm the son of God. Make sure you keep going to temple once a week. He didn't say, I'm the son of God. Make sure that you have a Christian t-shirt and don't listen to secular music. He doesn't say, don't go to Raid at our movies. I'm Jesus. He calls them to action. He says, follow me. When we think about our faiths, when we think about what it means to know and follow Jesus, we follow a God that calls us to action. 
We follow a God that calls us into a life filled with purpose, meaning vitality, right? We don't follow a God who tells us to sit in the back row, be quiet, and try not to bother anyone. Jesus called them to action. Jesus calls us to action. Jesus calls us to action. And so what was their response supposed to be? One of the reasons why I think it's kind of a daunting idea when we talk about following Jesus is that seems like a lot of stuff that we might have to do. And we, we, we really don't know where to start, right? So where do you start? Jesus gives them a starting point. If you go back a little bit to verse 14, Jesus gives everyone a starting point and the call to follow him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The beginning of following Jesus is to repent and believe the gospel. Our faith is more than a social agenda. Our faith is more than a set of good actions. Our faith is a supernatural trust and belief in the son of God. So what does this mean? Repent and believe. Because that word repent is kind of one that we hear like, ooh, that's not a good word. Especially in Topeka, like a town where that is hastily scrawled on um, like cardboard signs that people hold. The word repent has somewhat of a negative connotation. What do we do with that word repent? What does he mean repent? Because we can see that and kind of push off that and be like, I don't know about repentance. Or we can see repent and be like, yeah, I do need to repent. I can think of like eight things right now. Which one should I start with though? Like what's the worst thing I need to repent of? What does he mean when he calls them to repent? In this verse, in this context, he's talking about a very specific thing he wants them to repent of. So go look at verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That word repent is directly tied into that sentence that says the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's why those two things are connected. When Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand, he's not saying that that is the first time God was in charge of everything. It's not what he means. When he says the kingdom of God is at hand, what he is saying is that his coming to earth as God marks the opportunity of people to come and have their sins forgiven and know God. The kingdom of God at hand means that salvation was here. The opportunity to know God was here. The opportunity to be who God had created people to be was here in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he wanted them to repent and believe that. Basically, he wanted them to repent of what they were doing that was the biggest thing that was standing in the way of them and knowing God. It's the same thing that stands in the way of us knowing God. He wanted them to repent of looking for salvation and hope outside of himself. He was primarily talking to a Jewish audience. Do you know the main thing they looked for salvation out of? A religious system, right? All of their hope for salvation, knowing God, the forgiveness of sins, right? All of that for them was pinned on religious rituals and keeping rules. That might be something that some of us struggle with. Some of us might need to stop trusting that our good works and religious actions are going to be good enough for God. And so when he calls them to repent, that's actually a verbal, like that's an action word. And so that means you're going one way. You consciously and intentionally stop, turn around 180 degrees and go the opposite way. And so for a lot of us, we actually believe that we're going to please God, find salvation, and be who he's created us to be by doing things. So I need to keep these rules. I need to read my Bible. I need to go on trips. I need to teach things. While all of those things are good, none of them will save you. None of them result in your forgiveness. So he's saying stop looking for salvation out of religion. 
There's no salvation to be found in religion. There's only salvation to be found in Jesus. And for so many of us, we've thought that we're following Jesus, but in reality, we had no hope and belief in what he did on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Everything that we had was set on our belief that through keeping some religious rules, we could make ourselves acceptable to God. He's saying, that's not following me. Repent of that and believe in the gospel. For some of us, we're not looking for salvation in religion. We're looking for salvation in success. And so for us, we have a belief that we can find salvation by being good enough. And so even if it's subconscious, in our minds, what we've believed is that if we can make enough money, if we can rise high enough on kind of the corporate ladder of whatever field that you're in, if you can live in the right neighborhood, if you can, if you can have enough of money to send your kids to the right schools, if you can be invited to the right areas, if you can achieve an amount of worldly success, then you will find salvation. Maybe we wouldn't call it salvation. Maybe we would just call it fulfillment or happiness. But all of our hope is set on finding fulfillment in what we can accomplish in terms of success. For others of us, maybe it's like an idol of family. It's like, man, if I can just have the perfect family, then I'll find salvation. Then I'll find happiness. Then I'll find fulfillment. And so we work really hard on what our family looks like. And so we have to be together and we have to have healthy things and we have to do game nights and, and we have to look like we have life figured out. We have to do really nice family photos that we put on as much social media as we can because we need people to know our family's perfect. And if we can just get a perfect family, then we'll find salvation. Healthy families are good. God calls us to healthy families. He does not call us to expect salvation from healthy families though. For some of us, it's a different kind of relationship. It's like, man, if I can just have a good marriage, I'll find salvation through my marriage. And then we have this expectation that the person we marry is going to save us from something. If you've been married for a while, you know that's really not realistic, right? And But then we even fall into the trap of, oh, I must have married the wrong person. Maybe I should have married somebody else. This person doesn't make me feel great. And we fall into these really unhealthy patterns of thinking not that marriage is bad. God wants us to have good marriages. God doesn't want us to expect salvation from our marriages, though. So what Jesus is telling these people, the first step to following Jesus is repenting from expecting salvation or fulfillment outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's step one. Really good question to ask yourself if you want to know whether or not you're following Jesus. What is your hope of salvation built on? Is it built on a religious system? Is it built on your achievements? Is it built on your family? Or is it built on Jesus? Because that's what he calls them to look for. Step one of following Jesus is believing the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He came to earth, right? He lived a perfect life, which we are not capable of living. A perfect life that we're not capable of living. And he died on the cross for our sins. It wasn't a symbol. When he died on the cross, he literally took the punishment that you and I deserved. And then he rose three days later, ascended and sits at the right hand of God, waiting for the day that he comes back and ushers in an eternal kingdom. That's the gospel. That's what we do here. When we say that we follow Jesus, it starts with the belief that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And when we believe that, we're given a new heart, a new mind, our sins are wiped away, and we enter into the promise of eternal life. That is Christianity. That's following Jesus. And there is not a better life that we could be called into. That's what we see in Mark. Jesus says, the beginning of following me is believing that I saved you. How freeing is that? The beginning of following Jesus is not you being better. The beginning of following Jesus isn't you going to a class or doing some social work or giving some money. The beginning of following Jesus is just trusting and believing that he did what he said he did. 
that your sins are forgiven by what he did on the cross. And then something amazing happens. And, and so we, won't, we don't have time to get into it deeply, but, but the rest of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two are the disciples. They, they follow him immediately. They follow him. And then they see what God does. And so that last blank there, if you want it, is they see and participate in the work of God. They see and participate in the work of God. They get to watch Jesus do his thing and be a part of it. It's the same call that we have. So here's the reality. Are you following Jesus or do you just go to church? Are you following Jesus or, or are you following yourself? What does it mean to follow Jesus and are you? The good news is we have a God that calls us to follow him right now today, just like he did these guys. We have a God that invites us into a relationship with him. We have a God that's inviting us to repent and believe that Jesus Christ is our savior. Has that happened for you? Listen, if that hasn't happened, do it today. Follow him. God's calling you. Do what these guys did. Follow him and trust that he's going to take care of everything else. That's step one. Repent and believe the gospel. Do that today. Don't leave here without doing that as God is calling you right now to trust that Jesus is his son and your savior. Maybe, maybe this is the first time you've heard that. Maybe it's the first time you're really hearing it. Um, respond to that today. And listen, for those of you who know Jesus and are Christians, don't fall into the trap of thinking that this doesn't apply to us because it does. If we ever forget why we're following Jesus and what that means, our faith will cease to become something that gives us joy and we'll start to feel dry and like a burden. Jesus has called us to a better life than that. This applies to us. Don't forget that following Jesus is something we do because of what he did. That gives us freedom and joy. And we have to stay anchored in the reality of this. That following Jesus means that we're his children. So I don't know where you are on that spectrum today. um, But wherever you are, I would encourage you, as we see the word of God unfold before us, to hear and respond to the call of Christ. To believe and be forgiven of your sins. I'm going to pray and we have an opportunity to respond in worship. If you hear that call and want to begin following Jesus today, talk to somebody before you leave. Find somebody in the lobby. Find somebody who you know here. Find somebody that brought you and say, I want to repent and believe. Um, I want to follow Jesus with my life. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you not only love us, but that you clearly tell us what that means and how we should respond. God, I pray that as your word goes out, Pray that as we hear the invitation to follow you, to be uh, your children, to have our sins forgiven, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe and trust you. Let us go from thinking about following you to following you. Give us the courage for action. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.